Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, where each week, Dr. Frank Domino, along with his guests, translates today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. Now, broadcasting from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Mass., your host, Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Jose is a 46-year-old male in your practice. He has a past medical history of obesity, low back pain, type 2 diabetes, and dysthymia. He presents today with concerns of malaise, difficulty sleeping, and some trouble focusing at work. He feels he has no energy and comments that life seems to be more challenging than ever. His PHQ-9 score has risen to 15 from 4 just a few weeks ago. What is your plan of care for him today? Joining me today is Ken Peterson, assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, graduate school of nursing and family nurse practitioner to discuss the management of major depressive disorders in the primary care setting. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about what the best evidence is telling us around the diagnosis and treatment of major depressive disorder in our community-based primary care practices? So over the past few years, we've seen new evidence, um, basically systematic review research that's pulled together a lot of the different strategies and interventions for treating depression, most specifically the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality um, in 2015 published the systematic review um, that looked at random control trials from about 1990 to 2015 and taking into consideration um, treatment modalities like psychotherapy, complementary complementary therapies, um, alternative medications like St. John's warts, the things that we know people do, acupuncture, exercise uh, modalities like uh, yoga. And they really looked at the evidence specifically and graded it and rated it based on quality to determine, you know, which were the most effective interventions. Pretty much based on the analysis of all those different approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy and the use of medications, specifically the second generation um, antidepressant medications, were uh, had the best evidence in terms of um, having the best effect in, in treating our patients with depression. Well, you know that I, I have plenty of patients who will uh, try anything besides taking a medication or going for any sort of therapy. So that's really remarkable to hear. We, we need to reinforce with our patients that um, depression is no different than hypertension or diabetes. Sometimes you need to take a medication and sometimes you need help changing your lifestyle to get better. Can you tell us uh, some of the details, the pros and cons uh, of these recommendations? Sure, I, I think we need to um, think about um, fact that depression is a treatable um, problem and that we as primary care providers, if we intervene appropriately and at the right times, can make a significant impact, um, particularly in the first, you know, several weeks, the first couple of months of, of when patients have their illness has exacerbated if they have a chronic problem or not. Um, so that's really important. I think what we need to consider our patients' needs and what our patients um, might respond best to in terms of the recommendation that we make. And so if we think about 
cognitive behavioral therapy as a recommendation for a particular patient, we need to make sure that that's the appropriate treatment for that particular patient. Um, there may be some contraindications for using that particular treatment modality in some patients that may have um, a past history of trauma or other types of concerns, and that may set the patient up for um, a worse course, essentially, especially at the beginning of the illness. And also, if we look to the other side and think about the medication interventions, we have to think about um, the side effect profiles of medications and which medications may be best for particular patients based on their symptoms that they're presenting with. Let's, let's think about that a second. Do you have um, any thoughts? Of a, what, what's a certain comorbidity that might make you choose an SNRI versus an SSRI? So if you think about patient's symptoms, and certainly with depression, there's a constellation of, of symptoms that, um, that can develop, and patients with more anhedonic symptoms, um, low-energy-type symptoms, you might choose um, an SNRI or uh, an SSRI that has more activation effects to it to help that particular patient. Um, something like sleep, for example. Um, if a patient's presenting with significant sleep difficulties, you would look to um, one of those medications to, that has um, more of a sedative type effect to help that particular patient. I think that that's great advice. It's very hard in my community to get patients uh, insurance to cover uh, a trip to seeing a therapist for cognitive behavioral therapy. Any advice on how to make that successful transition, both in the patient's eyes and if there's a challenge with insurance, and, and any thoughts about any digital tools? Sure. Um, that's a great uh, point to bring up, Frank. We, I, I think we are challenged. In particular, in my practice, I work in an, an urban setting, and I work with an, uh, an underserved population. And um, if you look at the community agencies that help um, with therapy and psychiatry uh, for our patients, there's long wait lists and our patients have um, challenges. We've been lucky. We've had some behavioral health um, services on site in primary care, which has been really helpful. And they've been able to help us with that, those challenges of working with insurance companies, if that's the issue, or strategizing with different agencies to to prioritize a patient and move them up higher on the list. Um, certainly, if you don't have someone on staff that can help you do that, you have to know your community, you have to know what resources are available. Um, simple things like creating a list of agencies um, or um, practices that might be available for patients is, is quite helpful so that patients know directly um, where to go and, and how to access those. So. I like to think about journaling apps or white noise apps, and there's a variety of websites uh, out there that, that have some options for patients. Um, Frank, do you have um, any recommendations on apps or other resources that might be helpful? I do not know of any apps per se that help assist in cognitive behavioral therapy, although I know they're out there, and we'll have them on the landing page uh, associated with this. I do know some apps and some websites I do use for patients who have significant activation issues, in particular with anxiety. So uh, I use the website stressremedy.com where there's quite a few podcasts that are freely available and there's no commercial influence and I actually sit and listen to them with patients. 
The other app that I recommend the most for mindfulness and meditation and centering is published by the Veterans Association called Breathe to Relax, and the two is the number two. It was primarily designed for folks um, who are coming, returning from military experience with PTSD, and I found it works just wonderfully for anyone who needs some help uh, not perseverating or having significant anxiety issues. Ken, any final thoughts about best practices we should be engaging in when we make the diagnosis of uh, depression in our practices? Yes, I think that we really need to um, be mindful of um, implementing um, recommendations such as um, this systematic review evidence that really helps us know um, what truly works. Um, we're challenged in primary care practices with many things now, and if we think about the outcomes of our patients with depression um, or the successful treatment of our patients with depression or any other type of chronic illness, we really have to think about um, a practice-based approach or, or an, an and more organized um, way to do that. I mean, patients are challenged with issues of adherence and follow-up, like we said, even finding practices that will be able to see them in regards to the cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so there needs to be systems in place and practices where um, you have almost your own guideline of implementing um, and a, the opportunity or ability to follow patients once you've started them on a medication or make sure that they're not lost to follow up at certain stages of the illness. I think that's really where the best practices and um, the patient-centered home models and those types of um, quality improvement um, practices are helping us see that that's really um, what we need to do. So that would be my um, main recommendation. Thanks, Ken, for joining us on this important topic. Practice pointer. 16% of the population will develop a major depressive disorder over the course of their lifetime. Best evidence says to use both second-generation antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy in the management of major depression in the primary care setting. Join us next time where we talk about the adverse risks associated with pediatric cold and cough medicine. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. For more information about the article referenced in today's episode, look under the resources section of the episode landing page. Need help reaching your CME credit goal this year? If so, please browse the more than 300 free CME accredited activities now available on primed.com. We want to keep making this podcast better with every episode, so we need your feedback. Tell us what you think by submitting your feedback via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or log into primed.com and submit your feedback at the bottom of the episode landing page. Thank you again for listening.